to the Cookery by the Book podcast with me, Susie Chase. My name is James Peterson. I'm the author of Sauces, Contemporary and Classical Sauce Making. It has just come out in its fourth edition. Wow, this is the fourth edition of Sauces. What have you added to this new edition? Well, Susie, I've added some of this molecular cuisine material. There are a lot of ingredients that are used that have long been used in industrial applications that are now being used in kitchens. And lots of them sound scary, like this propylene glycol alginate. I know. That's putting poison in your food, right? I mean, everybody <laughs> sees these things and, and freaks out. Well, in fact, um, glycol, propylene glycol alginate is made from seaweed. It's a perfectly organic, natural product, as are many of these other things. They're made from fermented misos and different odd things, but they're not mined out of the earth. They're not minerals, so to speak. So they're very effective. They can be very effective in the kitchen to help stabilize sauces, to make, to create emulsions that wouldn't have been able, that one wouldn't be able to produce otherwise. So there are no, innumerable tricks that can be used, and this takes it a step farther in the sense that I have now incorporated a new generation of sauce making techniques and, and ingredients, so that. Um, it can be the, the chef or the associate has access to all three levels. So I've heard that you are obsessed with mother sauces. Tell us about that. Mother sauces are the classic sauces that were defined by a Scofier in the early part of the 20th century. And what I've done is say, all right, well, in New World Cuisine, you don't make bechamel sauce very often. So what you would typically do is substitute cream or lightly reduced cream or cream lightly thickened with egg yolks. Nouvelle Cuisine was, despite having a reputation for being light, had a heavy emphasis on butter and cream, which is one of the reasons it's so delicious, but it's also one of the reasons people, people are nervous about it. So moving to contemporary version of, of, say, a hollandaise, an example of a hollandaise would be a situation in which you made your hollandaise, but it's not stable. It's you try to keep it warm, you mustn't get it too hot, it's, it's a little tricky. So if you add a stabilizer like xanthan gum to it, a minute amount, it won't break, or at least it'll have a much harder time breaking. So those are the sauces or the base uh, ingredients that I use to extrapolate this whole book. Something new in this edition of sauces are hydrocolides. Please explain these. They create a colloid, which is essentially a mixture um, that includes water, hence in it, hydro and the colloid. They bring things together, just like I was describing earlier, how they can function as thickeners or emulsifiers primarily. Those are the main two functions. And then there's some glittery stuff like the spheres. I don't know if you're familiar with that, but they make these little spheres no. now that they use to decorate plates, and I've always, they're, they're pretty and they're fun, but I've always thought they were kind of gimmicky until I had this idea of deconstructing a sauce. And an example would be like a sauce financière, which is a port sauce, a brown port sauce finished with truffles. Well, usually the truffle flavor is cooked off and you don't get much because it's been simmering or whatever. 
So what I do is I put the truffle juice and the truffle in the spheres. And then I add the spheres to the sauce at the very end. So as you're sipping this sauce, port, this port sauce, these little spheres burst in your mouth and provide the truffle accent. Explain. It is a little weird. Explain the spheres in a little more detail. Well, these spheres, they're little, they look a little like caviar, depending on what size they are. They look like chevrouille caviar all the way up to salmon egg size or even olive size. But what you take, you make a solution and you add a certain. I don't even remember right now. You add a certain compound to the solution, and that's the bath in which you drop the spheres. Then you make another liquid, which is the sphere liquid. You add another compound to that so that when you drip the second compound into the first, it immediately firms up into a little sphere. And they've used these in molecular cuisine in a way that I've always thought was rather gimmicky until I saw this thought of this use of them, which would be for deconstructing sauce flavors and putting each component in the spheres. When did sauce making begin? The earliest recordings, records we have of sauce making that I have, the real record is, is a book by Apicius, which was written in the first century AD. It's written in Latin, but I have a translation of it. It's very interesting, and what what seems to be consistent in Roman cooking was the use of garum, which they also call liquidum, which is basically fish sauce. As far as I can deduce, it's just like Thai fish sauce. And they put it on everything. They, they just love the stuff. And I guess it was an accent, umami accent to their food, much like salt would be. In the Middle Ages, you wrote that most meals were served on a thick slice of bread. Plates weren't a concept yet. What were sauces like in the Middle Ages? Well, it's interesting because if you read most books about the Middle Ages or the late Middle Ages, say the 14th century, um, you most say that the, they used an excess of spices. They used too many spices. And spices were, of course, a great status symbol then. And we only have books written for the rich. We don't have the everyman's cookbook until the 18th century. So we don't know exactly what they use because the, the books that are in existence from then do not have the quantities. In my book, it's in the book, you can see it, where I gold plate a chicken. <laughs> I had to do that just to be a reverend. But in, in the, um, you see it in this one book I have, Taivon, by Taivon, which is called Le Viandier, and it was written in 1390. It was the first edition. And you see in there, um, these recipes with, with spices in them, but you don't, and there's one in which you gold plate the thing. They take the bird and they cover it with gold leaf. So I, what a fun idea to sort of make a modern interpretation. And this is when I had my restaurant. So we had the, um, the chicken parts, I gold plated them with, with um, gold foil. Well, gold foil, of course, is so thin that you probably get less gold eating a sheet of that than you would uh, on a piece of silver, the amount of silver you get off of silverware. So it's, you get very little, and gold is inert. Even if you made a big chunk of it, it wouldn't hurt you. It's totally inert. So there's no issue there. And then what I did is I made little almonds. That I colored them green with food coloring and made them out of marzipan. And then I, the, the 
sauce for the chicken was saffron and ginger and mint, which were all used then. But I, I combined them gently and delicately. And that was a delicious dish. And there's a picture of it in there, <laughs> making it, and how you put the gold foil on. Your everyday kind of practical dish, you know. Yeah, totally. Your Monday night dish. Yeah, right. Moving on to the 16th century, sugar appeared in greater quantities. How did that influence Renaissance sauces? Well, you started to get these dishes where sweet and sour was an important element. You get the dishes with fruit. I don't have my book in front of me, but I, um, which one is it? Lavarin's book has recipes for like pigeon with raspberries, that kind of thing. Things that are still on the repertoire. Chicken duck à l'orange is probably the most common example. And that was when they started using the gastrique, which is the mixture of sugar and vinegar, caramelized sugar and vinegar, to give the sweet and sour components of the sauces. It was a whole addition to sauces. And then in the 17th century, things started to coalesce. The, the spices were abandoned. They started using local ingredients like truffles and herbs, more delicate things. And that's when French cuisine started to distinguish itself from European cooking as a whole. And then in the 18th century, we saw the first cookbook for the middle class. What types yeah. of new sauces were introduced in that cookbook? Well, in those days, and for the home cook of the 18th century, they used a lot of integral sauces. And integral sauces, I, I kind of made up this distinction between integral and non-integral sauces. And integral sauces, when you get the sauce as a result of the cooking process itself, you braise something, you have the braising liquid you make, you might bind it up, you might leave it alone, whatever, but you have a sauce. You, you roast a, a chicken and you make a, a jus. That kind of thing, you you have your poaching, your poaching food, you have the broth, all that stuff. Um, whereas the non-integral sauce is when you try to emulate an integral sauce using stock, using reductions, etc. Everyone knows who cooks that reduced concentrated chicken stock is not going to taste like a jus. So in the 19th century, Escoffier's Le Guide Culinaire was released. Do you think... Well, that was very end of the 19th century. The earlier part of the 19th century was Karem. And he was the first one to, to organize sauces in, such, in a systematic way, such as you had base sauces and derivative sauces. So he preceded... He was a much more complicated predecessor to Escoffier. And then Escoffier took what Karem had offered and whittled it down and simplified it, even though Escoffier looks terribly complicated to us now. Who do you think was the authority on classical French cooking? Oh, Karem would have been. Okay. Karem would have been the star of the 19th century by far. Now, in the 21st century, it's all about hydrocolides and sous vide cooking technique. Talk a little bit about that. Yes. Well, sous vide is interesting. The problem as a sauce maker that I have with sous vide, is that you don't get much in the way to make a sauce with. Now, the, the, the inherent problem, and this is, this is germane to this, is if you roast a, a piece of red meat, rare, <clears throat> or even a turkey, if you roast it correctly, there are no juices, because the juices are still inside the, the roast. So what I do is make what's called a fonsage, 
which is a which you put under the bottom of the roast. I mean, under the bottom, right? On the bottom of the roast, on the sheet pan, and you take pieces of bone, meat, mirepoix, vegetables, carrot, onions, that stuff, and you roast that, and you put your roast over that, and that provides your juices. Well, in sous vide, you can't really do that. You have to make it completely separately, which is fine. If you're making a steak and you want a nice sort of, or you're making a piece of turkey breast and you want a little gravy or something, you take a, a few turkey wings and glaze, caramelize them and deglaze it, and, and that's your, your jus. But you don't cook it like a stock because that cooks out all that flavor. You've addressed condiments in this book. What falls under the condiment category? Well, a lot of these words I had to define myself. They're not rigidly defined. There's, there's really very little rigor in, in how chutneys are separated from jellies and all these things. Um, but I find, for example, that a condiment is something that you apply yourself. Like you might take it, a, a, a mustard, for example, or ketchup is a condiment because you, you have the option to apply it. Um, so... All these things that you see now, and condiments are very popular now. And what they do is they contrast with the food rather than underline it, for example, in the way mustard uh, lightens a, a rich, say, a pork chop with sauerkraut. You might want mustard on it to, to lighten it, to give it some, to balance it. And that's what, that, was, that is what a condiment is. Now, a French, this digresses from the French classic approach, because the French classic approach is that you underline the flavors, and that's what distinguishes French cuisine from all others. So sauces underline and condiments contrast? Exactly. Verjuice, if I'm saying it correctly, is an ingredient I've never seen before. Describe that. It's um, traditionally verjuice, verjuice, I I say it in French, I don't know how to say it, it's verjuice, verjuice, I think, I think you said it right. Um, It's just underripe grape juice. It's it's grape juice that hasn't been fermented and it's sour. It's a sour element. It's used to make things sour like vinegar might, but it gives you a different effect. I don't use it too often, but I have used it. It was very, it was the cutting edge thing in France when I was working there. They were always coming up with new things, like raspberry vinegar was a big thing. <laughs> and uh, verjuice, verjuice was one also. Are there hard and fast rules about when you put sauce on the side and when it's drizzled over the dish? Well, roasting is you, you always serve on the side. Hollandaise sauces, you always serve on the side. Um... Villotes, marshmallows, those can be served over the dish. It really depends on the style of the dish. If it's a roast, you always serve the jus on the side. And the hollandaise, I'm trying to think, well, mayonnaise, you serve on the side too, except not always. Because sometimes you get celeriac remoulade or something, and there's mayonnaise in that already in there. So I would say hollandaise sauces and roasts are the main ones. Where can we find you on the web and tell us a little bit about your new perfume company? At jimcooks.com. There's a, there's a picture of all my books and stuff. And I made eight, I have a line of eight now. Four perfumes, food, amber, sandalwood, and musk. 
And then I have four what I call Eau Flesh, which are light sprays, almost like Eau de Cologne, but they're lighter. And they're completely dry. They don't have any sweeteners in them at all. And they're very green. And they're very odd. Because they're made from things that people haven't consciously smelled before. Like vetiver, galbanum, vetiver, galbanum, violet leaf, and neroli. Those are the four of flesh. So we're marketing those around town. We just got into one store here in Brooklyn. So we're just starting. We have a website, brooklynperfume.com, and you see all the perfumes and stuff. As Daniel Belouz said, this book is a useful reference for any kitchen. Thank you, James, for coming on Cookery by the Book podcast. Susie, thank you so much for having me. Follow me on Instagram at Cookery by the Book, Twitter as I am Susie Chase, and download your kitchen mixtapes, music to cook by, on Spotify at Cookery by the Book, and as always, subscribe in Apple Podcasts.